Good morning. I really like what I'm going to start out talking to you about. I hope you enjoy hearing a little insider scoop because there's a lot of things that I really love about Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, for one thing, I have a husband who's been able to live clean and sober for 13 years um, because his trajectory towards destruction um, was intercepted by the people and the fellowship and the teachings of AA. It's how he learned to open up his heart to Jesus and um, pour his life back out to others in love and service because God showed up in his life and God showed up and um, it was through Alcoholics Anonymous members and teaching that that, that made a huge difference in my life. Um, but there's this other really cool part about AA that not everyone knows about that I'm going to give you the inside scoop on today. Um, I'm sure you've seen movies or television depictions where people are sitting at an AA meeting and they start off by saying, my name is Bob and I'm an alcoholic, right? So that's part of the anonymous the anonymous part of the program. Um, members just give their first names. Now sometimes, because of course there's multiple first names in any given place, if your name's Jennifer and you were born between 1975 and 1980, you know all about this. Um, so maybe in grade school you had to be Jennifer V, Jennifer M, um, and they might do that in AA, but there's this really great thing uh, that they have going in AA where um, you often will just get your first name <coughs> with a nickname applied to it, and that becomes sort of your, who you are around AA. So um, that's, and that's what I really love about AA. So for example, you can't just say, hey, have you seen John? Because you could be talking about how it works John. You might be talking about coffee bar John, or maybe it was closet John that you were trying to get, a, trying to get in touch with. Um, you might have said, hey, where's Ed? But was it little Ed or big Ed, or was it teardrop Ed? We don't know. <laughs> where's Mike? Russian mic or t-shirt mic? Which one do you mean? Um, and you might hear that Pete is leading the meeting tonight. And you might wonder, well, which one is it? Is it spiritual Pete or is it Pete the Clown? Um, there is really a guy, a part of AA, whose name, uh, his AA nickname is Pete the Clown. And it can cause confusion when there's also a local breakfast joint in the neighborhood that's called Pete's Clown House. One time, Frank was asked to give a ride to somebody after a meeting, and he was told that, hey, he lives right by Pete the Clown's house, but he thought, Pete's Clown House, two miles away, no big deal. It turns out Pete the Clown's house was 30 minutes away. So that was a strong lesson learned. Always clarify, are we talking about Pete's Clown House or Pete the Clown's house, if you're going to give someone a ride? Um, and maybe even if you don't share a name, they love nicknames so much with an A. If you don't share a first name somebody with someone else, you might still be Polish Paul, Pretty Rick, Danny Lips, and if you don't believe that these are all real names, just ask Father Frank sitting back over there. <laughs> so believe it or not, um, although I find great joy in sharing about these nicknames, it is a good reason to um, bring up what we're going to talk about today. Um, today's sermon, we're going to focus on someone from the Bible, and it turns out in the Bible, there's some of the same AA-type nicknaming going on. Among Jesus' nearest followers, the 12 who were closest to him for the three years of his ministry, uh, there were some duplicate names. So we have two James. There's James the Lesser, James the Greater, or um, James, who was the brother of John, also James uh, the son of Alphaeus. There were also two Simons. So there was Simon the Zealot and Simon Peter. Um, the apostle that I've chosen to talk about today is actually the one and only Thomas of the 12. And he did have his own nickname that the Bible tells us. It was Didymus, which we know means twin. The Bible doesn't tell us any more about that, so we don't know if he had a twin or who that twin was. 
Um, but it probably doesn't matter because he has been given a nickname that far overshadowed any nickname, nickname that he actually had at the time that he was um, living and at the time he was following Jesus. So I would be willing to bet that there's at least one, if not several of you in this room, who know what Thomas's nickname is. Anybody? Doubting, Doubting Thomas. So... In fact, when I was growing up, that's all I knew about Thomas. I knew the list of the 12 apostles, and I just knew Thomas was doubting Thomas. We had an assignment in seventh grade Bible class to do a poster project, pick an apostle, do all this report on them, whoever the, the best of each apostle was going to win a prize. And I knew better than to pick Judas. He was the one who betrayed Jesus, so no one was going to pick him. Um, everybody was going to pick John, the beloved disciple, or Peter, who had walked on water. But I thought this is my strategy. I have a better chance of winning the prize if I pick someone less popular. So <laughs> doubting Pom Thomas, right, because nobody likes a doubter. Um, it worked. I don't remember what the prize was. But I do know that I walked away with the prize for the Thomas category because I was the only one that picked him. <laughs> Yet, here we are, all these years after, and we're in this series called Unlikely Heroes from the Bible. And I've chosen to share about who we call Doubting Thomas. So my perspective and my understanding of Thomas as a person and my ideas about doubt itself really have changed a lot over the years for me to feel like he was someone that we would only think negatively about into something that someone who might really have something to teach us and something really valuable to offer us. So if you will, please join me today as we look at Thomas's life and the story in the Bible um, and as we just take a deeper look at doubt. Um, because what I've discovered is that despite our tendency to think about doubt as negatively and thinking of it as a liability and thinking of it something that would prevent us from drawing clear, close to God and walking closely with Jesus, I think that it could perhaps be an asset. Um, it's something that might give us a way to ultimately draw closer to God. So we're going to start by reading the story together from the Bible that tells us how Thomas became known as Doubting Thomas. Um, we will pick up with John chapter 20, verse 24, but I want to give you a little background of what was happening in the few days leading up to this part of scripture. So for three years, as I said, these 12 apostles had been following closely with Jesus as he was traveling from place to place, healing people and teaching. But just before the days, just a few days before where our story picks up, Jesus had been arrested and he had been put to death on a cross. Besides the crown of thorns that was put on his head, there were nails that held each one of his hands to the cross. And when he died, just to make sure that he was really dead, they placed a spear into his side. And when blood and water came out of that spot in his body, they knew that, yes, he was really dead. Jesus was put in a grave. And then on the third day, a group of women, including Mary Magdalene, came to the grave to help tend to his body. To their surprise... The tomb was empty, and there was nobody there at all. Their first response was despair. They assumed that someone must have stolen, their stolen his body. But then Jesus himself shows up to these women. They realized his body hadn't been stolen, but that God had raised him from the dead. And then Jesus instructed them, take this news that I'm alive to the disciples. Tell them, we've seen the Lord. And it wouldn't be much longer. That same evening, when um, the apostles were gathered together in a locked room, that the resurrected Jesus would appear to them himself, and he would show them his nail-scarred hands. He would show them the spear-induced scar on his side. 
except not all of the apostles were there that day. Um, Beside Judas, who had taken his own life after he betrayed Jesus, at least one other apostle was missing, and that was the apostle Thomas. So now we're going to pick up with the scripture. It's printed in your bulletin, um, starting with John John 20, 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Whoa. So we have these 10 men who Thomas has spent the last three years with, and they're telling him that they have seen the resurrected Jesus. And the response of Thomas is to say, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it for myself. And he actually goes a step further, not just I'm going to have to see it to believe it. And honestly, as a kid, I remember this sort of grossing me out. If you heard this as a story as a child, Thomas says, I want to touch those wounds. I want to be able to put my fingers where those nails were. I want to put my hand in his side where that spear was. So from this part of the story of lo- alone, you could see how we would give him this name, Downing Thomas. Um, I wonder if anybody hearing this for the first time or even the disciples themselves when it happened had to sort of pick their jaw up off the ground and say, I can't, I can't believe he doesn't believe. Um, his doubt comes across as shocking. Some people might even say, well, it's kind of arrogant of him. Thomas is skeptical, and he's unwilling to even accept a firsthand report from his very close friends. But let's keep reading and see what happens in the story. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I have to wonder what that week was like between Thomas hearing the report that Jesus was resurrected and until that week later when he encountered Jesus for himself. It's not really an insignificant amount of time. If you've ever been in that emotional space where a minute feels like an hour, And a day feels like a year. He's got this whole week. I wonder how he felt, and I wonder what his thoughts were. And I wonder what the other apostles thought of him, were saying to him or about him. And while we're left to kind of wonder about this, um, I do know from my own experiences with doubt and the honest testimony of other people who are willing to share with me about their seasons of doubt or their um, areas of doubt, that in general, doubt is treated as a problem that needs to be solved. Doubt is assumed to be this glitch in the system of a healthy faith and belief that just needs to be eradicated. If people speak about their own doubts, if, it, if they speak at all, it's often in hushed tones, accompanied with some sort of shame. Doubt tends to scare people. It can scare the person who's feeling it because they wonder, What's wrong with me? Am I, am I losing my faith? Um, it can scare and make other people who hear about it uncomfortable. They would just like for you to get it together and don't you dare make God look bad with your doubts. 
Doubt seems to cast an ugly shadow on the pretty picture of a tidy wrap-up that we would like to credit God for always being able to accomplish in our hearts and in the world. We would prefer certainty and resolution of our own doubts and the doubts of other people. But I think this comes from a false assumption that doubt is the opposite of faith. It comes from an assumption that doubt is a destructive force. But what if rather than being destructive, doubt can actually be a constructive force? What if it can be a tool that helps us to refine our faith and ultimately draw us nearer to Jesus? So what if instead of doubt being something that casts a shadow, doubt is actually shedding light? Doubt gives us a chance to get down and dirty with God, to bring our messy lives, our tough questions, our frailty, all of our inabilities. And when we find out that, well, doubt might scare us and it might scare other people, doubt does not scare God. So I'm going to propose that it is normal and that it's healthy and it's valuable to feel and express doubt and that doubting can actually help us to draw nearer to Jesus. So to support these points, I'd like to take a look back to another place in the book of John where we hear Thomas's voice and we see what's going on with him. Um, you may have all heard this doubting Thomas story, but you may have never heard this other story. Back in John chapter 11, we read about how Jesus is intending to take a trip to where his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. Lazarus has become ill and in fact died. And while Jesus is making these plans, the, the disciples jump in and say, don't you remember what happened last time we tried to go to that city? Uh, they tried to stone you. So how about let's not go there? Why, why would you even think of doing that? But when Jesus persists with his plans and says, I'm, I need to go, it is Thomas, Thomas, who proclaims in John eleven sixteen, let us all go that we may die with him. If John 20 is all about doubting Thomas, then John 11 seems to be about bold Thomas. But which one, when it came down to it, ended up being the real Thomas? When Jesus was arrested and crucified, did Thomas say, well, if you're going to kill him, got to kill me too? He didn't. None of the other disciples did either. In fact, they scattered and they hid. Peter denied that he ever even knew who Jesus was. Thomas, who thought that he was ready to die with Jesus, in reality, seems to have been shaken to his core. His boldness let him down. And not only in the light of Jesus dying and coming back, was this light shed on the fact that he had failed in his boldness, but he's wondering, did Jesus fail us all too? I don't think we can underestimate the blow that it was to Thomas's ideas about himself and to his ideas about Jesus to be put in this position. So no more than three days after all of this went down with Jesus's crucifixion, even though the other apostles had said they saw Jesus, their words alone were not going to be enough to raise hope within Thomas. So I realize with this, I'm going to be exercising a little bit of spiritual imagination. But when I think about my own experiences with doubt, and I wonder what was going on in Thomas's mind, this is sort of what I, I think might have been going on. Um, because why were seeing the scars great and, and all that those ten needed, but Thomas needed more? So I, I can imagine Thomas thinking or saying this. Jesus, I know these other people have seen you. I know that they say that you're alive, but I need to see you for myself. I know that they say that you showed them your scars, but I need an encounter with your scars that goes beyond seeing. 
Would you let me feel them? I thought I was ready to die with you and for you, but the strength that I thought I had has failed me. I'm wounded and I'm hurting. Would you let me experience the healing that can come from your wounds? Will you touch me in a personal way that can offer me reassurance that I'm desperate for, that death is dead and that life has won? And what does Jesus do? He seems to meet Thomas with his signature tenderness. Thomas actually doesn't even have to ask Jesus if he can touch his scars. Instead, Jesus approaches Thomas and offers his resurrected body to be touched. Even as he says, stop doubting and believe, I don't hear Jesus shaming Thomas. I hear Jesus saying in those words, Thomas, I know you need to see me and touch me for yourself. I'm offering you the firsthand reassurance that you need. I'm going to be your source of healing. I'm going to be your source of life. Here I am, making myself willing and able to present you with exactly what you need. Jesus makes a way for Thomas to come to a place of nearness to him, but it's through that path of doubt, not that path of boldness. There's no shame for failing to be bold, and there's no shame for feeling and expressing doubt. There is simply Thomas's doubts delivering him to a place where he can meet Jesus. So the story feels really hopeful for me. When I consider Thomas's experience, I feel like I am, and that all of us are, free to allow honest and sincere doubt to create a path for us to encounter Jesus firsthand, to come to him and receive exactly what each one of us personally and individually needs. We could totally exhaust ourselves trying to manufacture boldness that would be impressive, that would be, you know, I'm going to show up for God. But it's raw and real doubt that gets us down to our bare bones and desperate and ready for the kind of encounter with the divine that what is what we really need to be connected to our living God. So we can see from this story of Thomas, doubt ultimately can work as a benefit. Um, let's just dig a little bit into some other um, aspects of this um, so that we can talk about more of how doubt is normal and healthy and valuable. Um, also how it draws us closer to Jesus, how doubt can enhance our ability to worship, and finally, how doubt can help us to make Jesus more known to the world. So first, it's normal, healthy, and valuable to express doubt. I'm going to lean on psychology a little bit here to, to prove this point. Um, I think we already could say that we know that doubt is normal. If somebody said they never doubt, we would think they have a problem with another D word, D word which is denial. Um, but how could it be healthy and valuable? So this was literally the day one lesson that was presented to me as a graduate student in psychology. Our professor, who incidentally is also a follower of Jesus, talked to us about the health of what he called open systems versus what we would call a dysfunctional closed system. An open system is continually inviting in and considering both belief and doubt. It applies doubt to refine its beliefs, and it evaluates its doubts in light, in light of the beliefs that it has already refined and been, able to, um, and been able to hold to. You can think of an open system like a spring-fed pond. So there's fresh water coming in, fresh ideas are being introduced into the system. And a closed system is going to be more like a stagnant pool. Anybody ever wanted to take a nice big drink out of a a, a pond that has all the algae growing on it that is not getting any fresh of source water, so, source of fresh water in it. 
So a closed system where beliefs are never questioned and doubt has no place, um, where you just dig your heels in even deeper if anything challenges your beliefs. Um, it's, it's like a cult. That's how cults operate. It's an unhealthy way for churches, for families, for individuals to operate. Allowing doubt in makes us healthier. And here's an example. Aren't you glad that at some point followers of Jesus decided to question the idea that it was perfectly fine for one person to own another person's property? Doubt applied to the idea of slavery has created a more healthy belief and has created a core belief in the value and dignity of all people. And that was not always there as a part of our story as a faith or our story as a nation. Think of all the big advances in big structures like science and medicine and society that were created because somebody had a doubt about a previously held belief. So in big situations and even in our small selves, our spirits, our minds, and our bodies can benefit from well-considered doubt. A faith that is alive and growing is always going to have belief and doubt. If a faith presumes that it's got it all figured out um, and you can't apply doubt to it at all, it's probably going to be a faith that is stagnant and unhealthy. But an open system is going to invite doubt, knowing that it serves to better refine your beliefs. Um, I'm glad to say I think as a church we've done well with this. If you look at our church and how we've changed and, and evolved and grown over years, we've tackled tough questions and we've tackled tough issues and we've invited doubt in to help us make decisions and change. Um, a part of the reason that we have been able to do that is something that has been in the DNA of this church from the very beginning. Um, and this is where we're going to look at the next part, that doubt can help us to draw nearer to Jesus. Depending on how long you have been a part of um, this church, you may have once, twice, or many times heard Brad or someone else talk about a centered set approach. Here's a really simple explanation and an illustration to go with it. Um, centered set, we would be uh, comparing with something different we, that, that we would call bounded set. So many groups and many churches are have an approach that would be more adequately explained as a bounded set. So in a bounded set, there's a boundary for who is in and who's out. It's a hard line. Um, there's a hard, fast rule that says you belong or you don't belong. So I'm in at the YMCA over here because I'm a card-carrying member. They'll let me in the door. Um, in bounded set, you're either in or you're out, and that doesn't change. By comparison, a centered set is defined by the dynamic relationship between the thing at the center and all the things around it. In a centered set approach to faith and community, Jesus Christ is at the center. So it's not checking off certain boxes of beliefs or certain behaviors or rituals or habits that allow you to belong and make you an insider. It's about just having an orientation where you're facing towards, where you're moving towards the center. In a, in a centered set, some people who appear to be way, way out there are actually being pulled in towards Christ. In centered set, we depend upon the power and the attraction of the source at the center to be the thing that draws and keeps people near. This sort of makes me think of poor little Pluto. You know, the maybe sort of planet or dwarf planet that was a bona fide planet. Who was, Pluto was a planet when you were growing up, anybody? Okay, Pluto was a planet when I was in school. Um, but then um, 
along came this astronomer definition that says, sorry, Pluto, you're not going to get to be a planet anymore. So if we take the astronomer's definition of a planet, then Jupiter, you're in. Sorry, Pluto, you're out. But center set is like saying, we've got this massive, brilliant, insane ball of gas burning at the center of our solar system. And it is so powerful that it holds all these other masses in their place, in their attraction to it. From a Saturn set, Pluto is a total insider. <laughs> it's way out there, but it's kept in its orientation because it is attracted to the sun at the center. So if the sun is powerful enough to hold all of these planets in attraction to it, don't you think that our God is powerful enough to pull and keep us in orientation to him even as we face and grapple with doubts? Our doubts must be pretty puny compared to the grand scheme of God's grace and his power and his love. A center set also reminds us that our faith is about a relationship. Christ in the center means that there is a place of belonging for doubters because they can be in relationship with him. Somebody who is equal parts curious and skeptical about Jesus, even if they're taking teeny tiny little baby steps very cautiously towards him, or someone that is drawing near to him, that belongs even as a doubter. Doubters who are fed up with the institution of religion are very often still very attracted to Jesus. So you might be thinking, okay, doubters might be like little Pluto, way, way out there. I hear you saying that they belong. I hear you saying that we're not just cutting them out and defining them out of belonging. Um, but certainly doubters aren't going to be the kind of people that you're going to find worshiping. And they're not going to be the kinds of people that Jesus is going to specifically call and use and give a special purpose to. But we're going to see what the Bible has to say about that too. We're going to leave the book of John. We're going to pop right into Matthew. I'm not sure if this is in your bulletin or not. But they're very familiar verses that I'm going to read. And in fact, they, these set of verses have been given their own name called the Great Commission. So these verses are powerful enough that we call it Jesus's great commission that he gave his apostles before returning um, to heaven after he was resurrected. Um, but I've only ever heard a certain set of these verses. It was just recently, maybe in the past couple months, that I heard someone read the verse that preceded the great commission. Kind of blew me away. I wasn't sure if the person was making it up. You might think I'm making it up. You can check your own Bibles. But let me go ahead and read the Great Commission with the inclusion of the verse that comes before it. This is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. It's in there. It's really in there. I'm not making this up. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So you caught that very beginning, before the instructions, what this verse says about these 11 apostles. They worshipped him. Some of them doubted. With all that they had seen of Jesus, his life firsthand, his death, his resurrection, still some of them doubted. 
And yet those doubters are worshiping right alongside the other non-doubters. So you might wonder if there is a place for you in worship if you're feeling uncertain about your beliefs, uncertain about God, or discouraged by people who call themselves followers of Jesus. Let me assure you, Jesus is welcoming you to a place of worship. If people can stand there in front of the resurrected Christ and struggle with doubt and still worship, you absolutely can as well. This shouldn't come as a surprise if you've ever read the Psalms, by the way. Not all of the Psalms say, God, you're so great. God, we love you. Here's how awesome you are, God. Some of them say, God, why aren't you showing up? So we know honest and sincere places of need and doubt are absolutely welcome in the presence of Jesus and worshiping him. So considering all this, I think I can say with confidence that doubt doesn't have to prevent you from worship. And I think there's ways that maybe doubt can give you a little bit of an edge where it can enhance your ability to worship. If worship as you know it is something you struggle with during times of doubt, rather than simply going through the motions, allow your doubtfulness to propel you into new ways, to exploring new ways to worship. Worship doesn't have to be standing in a room of people singing like we're going to do in a few moments. Maybe you worship in total silence. Maybe you will worship through creating art. Maybe it will be through exploring nature. If you allow them, your doubts can help you to worship more authentically, more creatively, and maybe even more powerfully than if you had never doubted at all. And finally, we can't ignore that Jesus chose to deliver his final instructions to his apostles, to a group that included doubters. Jesus included doubters in his mission to make himself known to the world. You might have been assuming that it's only people who have it all figured out that are worthy to really represent Jesus. Be a good witness, right? Have your life together. Make God look good. That's how people are going to fall in love with Jesus. But Jesus didn't separate out believers and doubters before he gave this really important call. He included these doubters. Um, The Great Commission has a whole lot in it that we just cannot unpack today. I'm not going to do it. Baptism, so depending on what stream of Christianity you're talking about, you could be talking about sprinkling an infant. You could talk about immersing an adult. Um, Even this part of go and make disciples, uh, does that mean like, Mother Teresa making her home in Calcutta? Or does that mean when we um, say that we're going to go to a nation and convert them to Christ, but we're really going to colonize them and increase our own financial gain? My beliefs and doubts, if you can't tell from those descriptions, are still being worked out in those areas. So I'm not going to make any broad, broad, any um, bold proclamations about exactly what the fine points of the Great Commission mean. But here is what I can cling to beyond a shadow of a doubt from this great commission. Jesus tells these followers to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And thankfully, Jesus has provided us with a four dummies version of the full anthology of all I have commanded you. A few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 22. Because when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all with, your, with all your minds. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. 
love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So all the laws, all the principles, everything that the insightful prophets had to say about life living, life as a follower of Jesus, could be summed up like this. When in doubt, love. If you're doubting your own usefulness to God based on your presumptions about the kind of people you think he uses, then keep it simple and love God and love your neighbor as yourself. If you once thought you had it all figured out because you used to be bold like Thomas was in John 11, but then you find that your boldness and your certainty have failed you, you don't know what to do, love God and love your neighbors. Jesus has welcomed you, and Jesus has included you in his mission to make himself known to the world. When in doubt, love. You know what else is really beautiful about placing your love for God and your love for others at the center? If you're doubting, um, it simply doesn't leave room for pride about what you have all figured out. Doubt keeps you really gracious and humble. It prevents you from getting all tangled up in arguments about the non-essentials. Allowing yourself and allowing other people around you to have doubts, to maybe just say, I'm not sure about much more than the fact that I love Jesus and I want to love other people like he did. If that's all you've got, that is so powerful. Love doesn't need to control and micromanage impeccably correct beliefs. Love's power is in maintaining a relationship with the living God and in connecting with him in a way that enables you to deliver his compassion, his mercy, his healing, and his goodness to the people around you. I have a few takeaway suggestions that are for all of us, but really this is where I'm talking to the doubters in the room. So if you identify with, uh, with this whole idea of being a doubter, these are especially for you. First, I want you to feel free to purposely focus on what you don't know about God, what you don't know about the world, what you don't know about the past, present, or future. We can make ourselves feel really big when we feel capable about all that we know. But reminding ourselves how small we are in the scope of time, space, existence is beautifully humbling. God must be so much greater than what we can fully know or we can comprehend or else he would not be worthy of worshiping. So to doubt is to embrace the mystery of what we don't know or don't understand. So maybe this week you just make a list. Write down all the things that you do not know about. And then just revel in it and say, amen. I don't know. Second, we have all heard the phrase, as iron sharpens iron. And we usually think that that means that if you're doubting, you need to find another believer who doesn't struggle with doubt in order to sharpen you back up. I have personally found really beautiful company in the presence of other doubters. So as you acknowledge and as you work through your doubts, maybe you need to find other doubters that you can be safe and honest with. For a long time for me, when I was too afraid to talk to other real people in my real life about it, uh, my company was in bloggers and podcasters. So maybe you just start there. Um, Google those questions you have. Find out who's blogging, who's podcasting, who's talking about these same things. Don't assume that the iron that's going to sharpen you has to be another person who's got it figured out. Maybe you're going to find your path through understanding that other people are having some of these same doubts and questions, and, and, and you might figure them out together. 
The kinds of people that have doubts have been my real heroes in these past years. So maybe you will find out that doubters are the ones that will sharpen you as well. And finally, if you're kind of like feeling that stirring in your soul and you kind of can't even sit still in your seat right now because you are so craving that safe space of sharing your doubts with, other person, with another person, um, I just want to welcome you to reach out to me if you'd be interested in just having some FaceTime, whether it's connecting with me or me connecting you to other people or getting together in a group for something, maybe we'll call it Doubters Anonymous. Um, maybe we'll come up with nicknames. But if you have thought that your doubt meant that you were gonna be disconnected from people, maybe it turns out that your doubts are gonna be exactly what helps you to connect to other people and connect to God. I think that that could be a really beautiful and powerful thing, so I invite you to that. Um, let's pray together. God, thank you for choosing Thomas. And thank you for letting his story be told. Thank you for what it shows us. Thank you for the reassurance it gives us about how good and powerful and loving you are. So we come to you today. We rely on your power, your ability to attract, your ability to hold our doubts and our questions and our uncertainties and just grow us um, in a faith that has that room for, for doubt to do its good work. Give us ways to connect with each other that we can um, feel that sense of belonging to you and belonging to each other that we can be the sort of family, that we can be the sort of group that, um, that does deliver your love, that takes your love into this world, that we um, feel that love towards you and that we love our neighbors as ourselves in a powerful way. Thank you, God. Amen. <laughs>